Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of audiobooks. You know what audiobooks are, right? They're books that you listen to. You can listen to them on your device. You can listen to them on your computer. You can listen to them on uh, just about any digital gadget that you might have. So if you want to get a free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people and uh, spell out other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. I think that's how you spell it, right? Other people. Spell it out the traditional way, and you can get yourself a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Audible. Come on, folks, you want to listen to books, you want to be in your car, you want to be listening to a book on the way to work instead of listening to the radio and hearing advertisements. It's a better use of your time. Go to audibletrial.com slash other people today. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me on your device. This is you on your treadmill. Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I hope you're not on a treadmill, by the way. It's depressing to think of people on treadmills. Treadmills are inherently depressing. I'm Brad Listy. I think I already said that. I'm here in Los Angeles, and uh, it's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Jack Gems. I finally learned how to pronounce that. Uh, I don't mean to harp on this, because I know she gets this all the time, but for years, I've been sitting here at my computer, seeing her name on various literary sites, and wondering, uh, how the fuck do you say that? And I finally learned. It's Jack Gems. I'll never forget it now, and neither should you. Uh, she's got a story collection due out this fall from DeZank Press. Uh, terrific indie. It's called uh, The story collection is called A Different Bed Every Time. Uh, she also has a book out called My Only Wife, also on DeZank. So check those out. Uh, pre-order A Different Bed Every Time. Check out, I think it's DeZankBooks.org. I could have that wrong. Check out the DeZank Books website for more information. Check out... Uh, Jack Jems's website for more information for that matter. So uh, in the last episode in my monologue, I was talking about going to the ESPYs. I feel so, some obligation to let you know how that went. It went fine. I did not uh, interact with Jeff Bridges at all. I only saw him when he came out to present an award on stage. That was it. 
Otherwise, he was in the bowels of the uh, auditorium or whatever. What do you call it? The bowels of the theater. Hidden away in some sort of dressing room. And then they, they brought him up on stage. He presented an award. He was very uh, gracious, as you would expect him to be. Uh, I did, however, get to meet Maria Sharapova, the tennis star. I was there with my dad. I brought my dad to the uh, award show. And uh, my wife, uh, who works on the show, arranged for us to have our photo taken with Maria Sharapova, who was nice enough to take the photo, but who didn't, you know, who didn't say a single word to either of us. <laughs> my wife knows her manager or something like that, or it was working with her to get, you know, I don't know how it worked, but all of a sudden we were being ushered over to one side of this room. And then we were standing next to Maria Sharapova, who in high heels is uh, legitimately six foot five. And uh, I'm I'm about 5'11", 6 feet tall. My dad is like 5'7". <laughs> He's a small Italian man. And uh, next to Maria Sharapova, you know, the difference is striking. So that happened. And then otherwise, you know, you're just ogling celebrities and athletes and you're just in a fishbowl. It's weird. I mean, award shows in general are weird. Just the concept of them. And I mean, I guess in sports, it makes a little bit more sense. At least it's quantifiable, you know? Oh, you won the game. Oh, you had a good season. Oh, you threw for X amount of yards or whatever. You know, award shows involving art, it's a lot more subjective and weird and feels strange that there's any kind of competition for a trophy. But with sports, it makes, you know, some degree of sense. But even so, you know, you're in this theater, there's all these celebrities in there, a lot of celebrity athletes a smattering of uh, Hollywood talent. I saw Lil Wayne or Lil Wayne. <laughs> By the way, I hate the word Lil. Like, what the fuck is that? Why do I have to say that? That should not even exist. Lil. Hey, Lil Wayne. Is that what people call him? They call him, what is it? Is he young Jeezy? I don't even know who's who. I have no idea. But he was sitting on the aisle. He's about like five feet, four inches tall. He's very tiny. And uh, he was sitting on the aisle. I was walking up to my seat and like we made eye contact. I made eye contact with Lil Wayne. And then, uh, I mean, you know, are you sports fans? I saw everybody that was there. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing interesting. I didn't talk to anybody. But, you know, some guy, when it, uh, my dad and I were backstage and we were having a drink in this room which is the same room where we got our photo taken with uh, Maria Sharapova. And some guy came up to us and started chatting us up. And he asked my dad what, uh, what my dad did for a living. And, uh, I think my dad was nervous <laughs> because, you know, we're backstage and this, and there's all these, uh, huge imposing, you know, imposing athletes and famous people everywhere. And my dad told this guy that he was a sports agent. He just blurted it out. And then the guy's like, well, who do you represent? And then it just got awkward. Because my dad wasn't joking. I think he was like thinking that he was going to get kicked out of the room or I don't know what he was doing. And the guy who asked him was a weird guy. You know, he wasn't, you know, like who comes up and you don't even know anybody. What do you do? I hate that fucking question. What do you do? Doing this. Standing here. Trying to drink vodka in peace. <laughs> Just met Maria Sharapova, who couldn't even say hello to us. But, you know, you got to feel bad for her. 
uh, A, how many people are like, oh my God, you're so fucking tall. And then B, how many people want their picture taken with her? I mean, she's a stunning woman. She really is beautiful. And uh, you just got to, you got to imagine how much shit she's heard over the years. You know, like a, a beautiful, uh, you know, six foot, whatever. I mean, I think in, in uh, flats, she's probably six feet tall. I mean, like a beautiful six foot tall champion tennis player, blonde, like bombshell that she's ha- she has to have seen a lot of ugly things out of men over the years or heard a lot of ugly things, just bad behavior, men leering at her. So I think she just had, I think she's just over it. She probably has a low opinion of humanity. <laughs> Not that it takes much these days. It's been such a shitty weekend in the news. My God. I can't even turn it on. I can't look at it. These pictures coming out of Gaza and this fucking airliner uh, in Ukraine that got shot down out of the sky. A fucked up world. You know, and it's like, what, what can we fix this? Are human beings just irrevocably fucked? It's a, it's a, I mean, you start to sound silly when you talk about it, but it's like, it's gotta be a revolution in consciousness. We cannot, uh, blow people up and drop bombs and shoot guns to solve problems. Period. Doesn't work. Short-term fix at the very best. I mean, I know that there, you can pull out your Reinhold Niebuhr or whatever the fuck it is and start arguing about the necessity of force in certain situations. And you can start to pick apart the morality, but here's the deal. Okay. I figured it out. Uh, violence begets violence. And when you start dropping bombs, you, you, you launch invasions, you start wars, you don't know what the consequences are going to be. And moreover, uh, the consequences reverberate for a long fucking time. Meaning uh, I think today we're still feeling reverberations from say the civil war. And if you don't believe me, go check out, uh, the Southern United States in particular. I think we're still feeling the effects of world war two, world war one, Vietnam, the first Iraq war, the second Iraq war. You know, these things lead to unintended consequences. Dominoes fall. They metastasize, you know, the Russians invaded Afghanistan in what, like what late seventies, early eighties. Is that when that happened? The United States went in with the CIA and trained the Mujahideen that, uh, that led to Osama bin Laden. That wasn't in the plan. We need, we need wiser people running the show. And, and here's the other thing. We need people with more courage. It takes courage to say something like, why don't we all like arrange a meeting or just try to push for like some sort of crazy, like diplomacy, some sort of public forgiveness forum <laughs> between like the Palestinians and the, the Israelis. There has to be communication. There has to be a dialogue it has to be public so that the public can see it. It has to be mediated by someone who is neutral. And it has to be conducted properly. And here again, language is important. Any kind of conflict resolution, language is so important. It's why people have marriage counselors. It's why people have, um, you know, mediators when there's some sort of like really intense negotiation. You need somebody in the middle who can referee. That's why there's a referee in a boxing match or in a hockey game. So people don't beat the shit out of each other. Oh, that was a rant. So anyway, uh, I usually don't go off on, uh, you know, current events, but it's just been one of those weeks and, uh, 
you know, it's on my mind. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So let's get to the show. Let's get to uh, the conversation. Let's get to Jack Gems. Very pleased to have her here. Uh, her story collection upcoming, once again, is called A Different Bed Every Time, uh, due out from Dezank Books in the fall, in October, I believe. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jack Gems, and her story collection, one more time, is called A Different Bed Every Time. I am in uh, the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago, and I'm in my um, I'm in the office where I work. So I booked a conference room so that I could talk to you. And um, it's a small yellow room. There are windows into other conference rooms, so you're never entirely alone. Um, and yeah, it's. So is anyone observing you right now? Are you being watched? <laughs> No, no, there's no one in the room next to me right now, but I bet there will be before we're through. Okay, and, and let me ask you this. What seat at the conference table did you take? Are you sitting at the head of the table, or did you pick like a wing <sighs> seat? I work in a really weird office where no conference room is typically arranged like that. So this is actually just like there's a desk in the corner and then a bunch of chairs in a circle with no central table. That's kind of nice, though, because like I found like when I have meetings in conference rooms, uh, you know, as like a writer, like I've gone on like Hollywood meetings, they always show you into a conference room or they often do. And it's like you in this table. And then it's like the psychology of which chair do I sit? Like, do I sit at the head of the table? Is that like presumptuous? <laughs> if I don't yeah. sit, if I don't sit at the head of the table, does that somehow indicate weakness? Do you know what I'm saying? Am I overthinking this? I do. Yeah. Well, no, but I do think that probably that's, that sort of power dynamic is at play no matter how the chairs are arranged, yeah. you know? Right. I think like if you're used to sitting in a bunch of cushy chairs together in a room, there is still that idea of like, okay, now do I sit next to the CEO or do I sit across <laughs> from her? Like what's more right. aggressive or like, yeah. Or <laughs> You know what you should do? It's like you should, uh, if, if the chairs are arranged in a circle, what would happen if you just sat on the floor in the middle? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, that would be entirely common around here, I think. <laughs> well, so where do you work? What's, what's your uh, day job? 
I work at a software company called Jellyvision, and um, we have been through a number of different uh, sort of permutations, but we started out as, or not started out, but the first way that we became known was as uh, a maker of trivia computer games. So we made a game called You Don't Know Jack, and we made that. Um, was that in reference the, to you? No, no, no. But I do uh, like to clarify that for clients regularly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, then we made like the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire computer game. And now what we do is more like digital marketing. And um, we make this benefits education software that's pretty helpful, I think. That's the side of the company I work for. You sound happy. I mean, not that you're going to bag on, not that you're going to bag on your place of employment on this show too much, but like <laughs> some people, I think writers often have very uh, strained relationships with their day jobs. But I think it's a it's a blessing when you can find a day job that just doesn't totally like drain your soul. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a. I mean, it's definitely it's the a sort of job where there is a definite busy time, and so there are several months of the year where things are just. Uh, pretty wild, pretty hectic. I mean, don't get a ton of writing done, but the rest of the year, it's a really ideal company to work for. It's really, uh, create, it fosters creativity and quirkiness and, um, allows for a lot of independence as far as your work day goes. They're not crazy about you working from home or, you know, taking an hour off because they know you'll make up for it. You know, everybody's just sort of in charge of their own work and getting it done. Let's see. That's that strikes me as like a sane, you know, in, in a sane yeah. in, in a sane world, there would be none of this FaceTime business or people feeling like they need to stay at the office until seven to keep up appearances or whatever. Like that's ridiculous to me. Like, aren't we? Can't we just be adults? Get your stuff done. Go home. Yeah, yeah. That's very much how this place is. It's pretty awesome. Well, that's great. So, and and you're in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago, which is lovely, especially during the summers and the warmer months. Like you get to get out and yeah. like wander the zoo or whatever. I'm pretty, I'm actually like on the west side of Lincoln Park, so I'm not very near the zoo, unfortunately. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it is a nice neighborhood to walk around, but part of Lincoln Park where I work is actually more like an outdoor shopping mall. There's just like every store you could find in a mall is just out here, like at sidewalk level. So um, it's more that sort of vibe in this part of the neighborhood. Oh, see, I was picturing like the zoo and the lake, and you're like, there's like, there's like the body shop in Orange Julius, and <laughs> yeah, um, that would be one improvement that could be made. Yeah, a little more green space. Okay, well, uh, uh, maybe you could send a memo to the CEO. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, tear down the shopping mall yes. instead of a park. Let's yes. reverse that, Jimmy Mitchell stuff. Yeah. So can uh, can I ask you before we get too deep into this because I feel like it's something that I just want to get out of the way, but I also want to make sure that my listeners are clear on because it does beg questions. Is the pronunciation of your name? Uh, I was fix- sure. I was fixated on this uh, like before we came on the air. I was talking to you about it because I was sort of thinking about it, making my wager, and then of course when we got on the phone and I and I said the way that I thought it was pronounced, I was wrong. So can we just clarify this for people listening? Yeah. Uh, so Jack Jens. Uh, Jack is short for Jacqueline, and gems is just sounds like the plural word gems. Yep. Okay, so have you always been called Jack, or is Jack something you adopted as like your uh, authorial name? Uh, my parents have, or my family, just basically has always called me Jack. Like every once in a while, as like a cutesy thing, my dad would call me Jackie, but mostly I was Jack. Um, and then I started 
trying to convince teachers to do it. Um, I forget if it was like junior high or high school. Most people had defaulted to Jackie for a time when I was a kid, when I was younger. And then um, at, at a certain point, I decided to become militant about it. <laughs> well, I see. I, I like my wife and I both like boy names for girls. Like uh, we named our daughter Evan, which is sort of a, like becoming a hybrid, I guess. But oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I mean, like, I and you know, I don't know what it is, but we we tend to like. I like the name Charlie for a girl. Like, there's different, you know, there's different examples that I could point to, but I don't know what that says about us. You know, we, we yeah, get, I like it too. I have to be honest though. Like when I hear my name, I don't hear the boy's name, and maybe it's because there's no K. But I wish it had a K because that would seem so much cooler in my mind. It would be so directly like a boy's name. Well, I think it's great. I, I think it's a lovely name <laughs> for a girl. And I think like, uh, I don't know, it's nice to have kind of a unique name, would, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, especially because like, Jack isn't actually a unique name, but it's unique for a woman. And, yeah, uh, right. I mean, my name's Brad. It's just like, oh, what the, could there be a blander, <laughs> more like, you know, uninteresting name? <laughs> I've heard you talk about your name before, and I think it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a lifelong struggle. It'll never end. Yeah, or actually, <laughs> it will, but it's going to be. Hopefully, it'll be a while. Um, uh, yeah. So okay, so uh, you live in Chicago all like lifelong Midwesterner, Chicagoan, or is it? Did you come there from somewhere? No, yeah, I was raised in the suburbs, and um, and I went to Central Illinois for a few years for undergrad. But aside from that, I've always been. Right here. Okay, so what suburbs are we talking? Uh, Park Ridge. It's right on the northwest corner of the city, sort of between... uh, My parents' house is about a block away from the city limits, so um, between the city and O'Hare, if you can imagine that. Okay, yeah. My sister lives up up on the north side, like not far from Wrigley Field, like that neighborhood. Yeah. It's nice. Chicago. I I always... I mean, I've talked to writers from Chicago on this show, and uh, I always always say the same things. Like, boy, I love it. The the winters seem bleak. The good weather... Like, there's nothing better than Chicago and good weather, is I think what I say. And when I was uh, talking to you earlier about the Lincoln Park Zoo, like, something that I find when I go to Chicago is that there seems to be a kind of uh, civic order. I guess you could say the same thing about New York. And, and I'm saying this as a Los Angeles, Los Angelino, where there doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. a, as much order. Like, for instance, on the 4th of July, it was like, where do we watch the fireworks? I have no idea. There's like no plan. There's no park that everyone yeah. goes to. It's just like, you know, like, please don't burn down the mansions and the hills is essentially what Los Angeles yeah. says. And that's it. But like, I feel like in Chicago, yeah. everyone goes to like what, like Millennium Park or the pier or something. And I don't, Yeah, I guess those are the traditional places to watch it. But um, Chicago has a tradition of sort of looking the other way at the smaller parks and usually there's uh i vote for the smaller parks because it's usually like uh it might not be the as grand a display but usually there's so many individuals coming out and setting off these fireworks they're excited about that it's a little more fun it's a little more organic <laughs> just like watching watching your fellow uh citizens like light off their illegal fireworks in a public area yeah and fearing for their lives it's better if there's a little fear right yes I, yeah i'd like a little bit of danger uh though i, I mean I, like living here there is uh, especially because of this drought and because of the uh the summer months where everything dries out like you really do get the sense that you're living in a kind of tinderbox like like you know it's it's sort of amazing to me and i'm going to knock on wood uh, but it's sort of amazing to me that there aren't more problems with fires because literally oh, it's, yeah. just, it's just bone dry. There's nothing. There's no water. <laughs> Oof, yeah. 
I, I mean, all told, I'm not actually the biggest fan of fireworks. So, I mean, I, I don't know that I would miss it that much. But if I were in Los Angeles, I might, um, yeah. I think that I might err on the side of saying, are we insane to be even attempting to pretend like fire is a good idea out here? Yeah, maybe we can just have some sparklers or something, just like keep it. Mellow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so but, yeah. so suburban Chicago, uh, you know, born and raised, you've always been there. Was it a, was it a, a happy childhood? Did you enjoy, like, your youth? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my parents were pretty strict, but, um, but also like they were strict in weird ways. Like I was, uh, I had early curfews and it was just assumed that I would never really do anything bad, but also they didn't care what we watched on TV. Like I could watch it. I could, they could come out and watch me find me watching pretty woman when I was like five and no problems there, (laughs) you know, but, um, yeah, so they, they were, they picked and chose what they were, uh, strict about, but yeah, it was good. It was fun. Okay. And siblings? Uh, I have one older sister. Okay. Uh, so which one of you got in trouble? Usually one person causes trouble. No, I guess that I'm the more, I, we were both really good kids all told. I mean, my, my sister is, uh, we're very different, but we both have a lot of the same kind of type A tendencies, I think. My sister is a biologist now. I went more the creative route side of things, but um, I think the ways that we pursued what we wanted to do is maybe similar. Um, and I was the noisier, more talkative between the two of us when I was a kid, and maybe I tested my limits a little more, but... Uh, maybe I was better at keeping it for my parents or they just weren't paying as much attention. But, um, yeah, I, I mean. Okay. So what about, like, what about your folks? Like if you both you, you and your sister were so well behaved and I, I asked this question with some degree of self-interest <laughs> because I have a young daughter, like how did, yeah. how did, how did you guys both uh, turn out to be well behaved? Was it just like some sort of inherent thing or, uh, were you like scared Man, of your dad or. That stuff is so interesting to me because I feel like, you know, you can see parent, people that are just the best parents and then their kid has real issues, you know. So I really, I, I don't understand how any of that works. My mom, um, I mean, they both had a good temper on them, but... Uh, what, but did they, what did they do? I, I what, know, what, did, yeah. what, did your, what did your dad do and your mom do like uh, for work? My dad was a tool and die maker. Um, so he like made machines in a factory, but was more like on the engineering side of things, but didn't have a degree. Um, and my mom, before my sister was born, was a uh, art teacher, but after that, just stayed at home. Okay. So that you have a little bit of the art thing. I guess both parents, though, when you're making things, putting things yeah. together, engineering things, like that's kind of, I can see how that could, there could be a through line to a literary kid. Yeah, yeah. And they both used to read a fair amount. Uh, my mom maybe more than my dad, but my dad was, yeah, into all, like, the James Michener and uh, Michael Crichton kind of stuff, you know. Right. What was so there the, were always books around. I, I saw a lot of James Michener books in my grandparents' house, my mom's parents growing up. I was like, what do they call them? Like, Texas or something. They're yeah, always, they're, Mexico. They're always, and always, yeah. <laughs> was, we had to listen to a lot of those on, like, family driving trips. Oh, really? Books on tape? Yeah. <laughs> 
Were you into it? I didn't. I don't remember paying attention to him at all. No, I was like, you know, doing something else in the back seat. And so, like, where where were you guys going? Did you have like like a lot of road trips as a kid, or were you going to visit family? Or yeah, we went on a fair number of road trips. We'd go down to Florida to see family, or um, we like went on a two week driving trip like out west through the Badlands and Yellowstone and up through Canada. And then we did like an East Coast trip like that or like we drove down the California coast. When I was younger, my dad was super into driving trips like that. So we did a lot of that. Okay, yeah, because I've been thinking about that too. Like I feel like maybe it's like a rite of passage. It's good for the child to go on a road trip. Why do I have that in my head? I don't know. I mean, I think that it used to require a certain amount of patience from kids, but now there's so many screens. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure the experience is much different for a kid now than it used to be. Yeah, they can just like put their headphones on and watch like movie after movie and like not see a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, okay. So road trips um, and you got along with your sister. We fought a lot when I was a kid, but but we got along more as, like, we were four years apart, so we were never in high school together, and I think that helped. Like, once she went to high school, we started getting along a little better. Okay. And, like, on these road trips, like, I mean, because that's the thing, too, is that, you, you know, I went on long, we used to drive from Milwaukee to Louisiana. I, I did that drive with yeah. my family, like, multiple times, like, going, going back for Christmases, and, uh... It's intense. There were three of us in a station wagon, like no seatbelts. Oh, man. Like in the way back, you know, those were the days. Yeah. I don't think that you yeah. can, do people do that anymore? Just let the kids just lounge around without a seatbelt on? I don't know. But <laughs> No. I mean, we always had to have our seatbelt on, but like I would find ways of like having my seatbelt on, but like laying down or sitting in some other way where it, I certainly wasn't properly wearing it. Okay. And so, uh, and then in, like as a, as a kid, were you socially well adjusted? Um, I, you know, I think I, I, maybe around like, I had, I had best friends that moved away like every year up until junior high. Like I would make a best friend and then their family would move away. So that was, um, like, and mostly I was doing okay with it. But then I think around junior high, I got quiet. Like I started getting I mean, like most kids when you're like in pre-adolescence, but getting sort of like more uh, like judgmental about yourself and um, and like worrying about like making sure whenever I spoke, it was the right thing, you know, that uh, kind of stuff. So sure. I think I got more shy and was sort of shyer through maybe through high school. Yeah. Okay. But like, but not, not... I, I would say I was basically well adjusted, you know, just maybe I had gone from being more talkative to quieter. So I'm digging, you can feel me. I'm digging for something. There's nothing there. It was just a, a basically a happy childhood. Well adjusted. Oh, yeah. Well behaved. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Damn. Okay. So, but nothing. <laughs> I know. The worst Sorry thing, about the, that. The worst thing that ever happened was like your friends moved away so far. Yeah, or, I mean, I it, like then in junior high, I had some friends like really just like dump me. This it, it feels silly to talk about this, you know. I'm over it. You are, but, yeah. You know, I'm not. I think. Well, I guess maybe not, right? If I'm bringing it up now, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm pissed off for you. This is terrible. So, yeah. what happened? Let's let's uh, let's talk about them. What happened? Oh yeah, I don't know. I mean, I it just it was like yeah, we had a group of friends and um, we would all hang out, and then a couple new friends came into the group, and then all of a sudden I became aware that they were hanging out without me, 
And like, I remember trying to be really mature about it and address it and say like, you know, what's going on? Like, how can, what, you know, like, what, why didn't you call me to hang out this time? But like, it was just like, like a wall had gone up. So who knows? And you don't know why. I never found out why. Kids are so mean, man. Junior, yeah. high, junior high, especially, I think. I feel like kids are at their yeah. maybe at their meanest in like seventh oh, and eighth grade. Oh, sure. definitely. Oh, I remember. Yeah, we yeah. used to we used to do. Like, I remember when I moved. I moved into a new school in sixth grade, and like a guy who who would actually ironically go on to become one of my best lifelong friends. Like when I first moved there, he. Uh, I remember him telling me like that I had to stay six feet away from him at all times. Oh, he didn't want me near him because I, I was like a nobody. <laughs> yeah. And like that sort of thing, you know, and, and it was like dis- it destroyed me. And I remember I went home and I told my dad about it. I was like, God, you know, dad, this guy's making me. And my dad's just like, my dad told me to like punch him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which like, uh, oh, yeah, great. I mean, but he was like, you know, I think he just felt bad for me. He's like, you can't take that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I was not the punching type. So I never did punch anybody, but. Um, yeah. Okay, so then, uh, like, were you like uh, as a as a young person uh, writing, reading a lot, feeling like you were going to be a writer, or did this come to you later? When I was like, when I was pretty young, like third grade, I remember telling my teacher, my goal is to write a one hundred page book, and um, and then like writing a bunch when I was around that age, and then I think I forgot about it for a really long time, and um, I thought I wanted to be, like, an actress or a, or a musician or something, uh, and then I went to, I did that kind of stuff all through high school and um, and wrote a little bit, like, you know, terrible poetry, like everyone ha- else does. Do you have any with you that you could read, with, read for us? Oh, I don't, no. <laughs> I wish I... It's got to be in my parents' house somewhere, but I don't know. I might have destroyed it at some point. There should be. I mean, like, you know that that thing, Mortified, where people read from their diaries? Like, yeah. I feel like there should be a tumbler of people's, like, junior high and high school poetry. That would be awesome oh, to yeah. read. It would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So um, then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then you go, off to, uh, you go off to Central Illinois for college? Yeah. What? Why there? Um, and I majored. Oh, uh, so there's a, a small liberal arts school there called uh, Illinois Wesleyan University and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do at that point I was already like when I was applying to schools I I wanted to do theater and English writing and maybe music too if I could manage it I was very deluded about what I could accomplish in oh, wait, four did you years play, of did education you, did you play an instrument I, I played guitar very poorly but if I would have gone for music of any sort it would have been for singing and you can sing uh, not so much anymore. At the time, I was okay. Like, like, uh, compare your voice to somebody's. Um, oh, gee whiz! I who were you, who were you maybe, trying to who were you trying to emulate? Come on, like, like. Was oh, it, at the time, like, I mean, um, like Indigo Girls, Joni Mitchell, Ani DeFranco, that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. I think I, yeah. I, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this, but there was like a whole group of girls in my class in high school who used to like write on their blue jeans. You remember they used to write on Yeah, oh. And they, I was that girl. Yeah, and they would yeah. all, and then they would all sit around and like harmonize closer to fine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I remember well, that. Well, that was me, but I was doing it by myself. <laughs> oh, you were. You didn't even have a group. You didn't need one. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah. so okay, so you're doing that and then you go down to Illinois Wesleyan thinking you're going to be like this renaissance woman. 
Yeah, well, that is why I decided to go with a smaller school because I was like, oh, I can be like the big fish in the small pond and do all of the things. But um, but once I got there, I realized like, oh, I, I don't actually want to do all of these things. It was just some weird like type A part of me that wanted to be the best at everything rather than like just one thing. And yeah. Okay, so let's so, talk. Let's talk about this type A ness. Like, where do you get it from? I mean, I think I, you know, I don't know where my sister got it from, but I think a lot of it has to be because my sister was such a good student and just like such a good kid. And I was like, okay, I just like, I need to be as good as her. And it's so weird because other kids, I'm sure, see a really successful older sibling and think like, "Ah, I'm never going to do that. I'm going to rebel. You know, I'm going to do this other thing. But like I wanted to do all of the things my sister did and then more. Like I wanted to do all of the things that she was excelling at and then also be really good at like acting and writing and singing. So it's competitive. Yes. Are you a naturally competitive person? Like are you somebody who I like, think I am. When you play checkers, yeah. do you get pissed off if you like lose at checkers? Yes. You I'm do. a terrible loser. <laughs> yeah. But that can see this is And a- I and I hide it a lot. I try to hide it because because I know this about myself. Like I try not to, uh, yeah, I try to squelch it, but I'm I'm a wonderful loser. That's my fucking problem. Like I'm like, yeah, I'm just like, Oh, you know what? You know, I can, (laughs) I can lose easily. Oh, I'm I, such an I'm really bad. I think that uh, I think that can serve you well though. It's, it's almost like an, I think in the way that the world is set up, at least it's an advantage. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, don't yeah, you, because if you, if you if you hate to lose, let's let me put it into context, and maybe it'll make more sense. But yeah. it, it, with regard to writing in particular, uh, it's a, it's a line of work or a, 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 an area of interest, a pursuit that is uh, inherently fraught with rejection. Like it's just, yeah. it's, I mean, unless you're ex- extraordinarily talented and or extraordinarily <laughs> lucky, you're going to get rejected a lot. And totally. If you have that like type A competitive fire, you hate to lose then it stands to reason that you will get back up and keep trying or keep fighting until you succeed. No? Yeah. No, I think that makes total sense. Yeah. Okay. So like when you, people that have to like mini golf with me, you know? (laughs) 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 So when you, uh, when you got to college and you started to kind of, uh, you know, get real about things, how quickly did you shed like the musical pursuit and the theater pursuit and, did you did you narrow it down to English in college or was that afterwards? Yeah, so I um, I shed the music pretty quickly. Like I kept just like doing my own thing on the side, but I didn't pr- pursue it academically at all um, because I at the time theater and writing or theater and English seemed like the top two of the three to me, and it seemed like doing all three was going to be too hard. Were you singing? So then, were, you, um, were, you, were, like, were you singing in cafes and stuff? Uh, not cafes, but like at like little campus events, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> or you, I guess I did like open mic nights at cafes. Yeah. Did you go barefoot on stage? No. no. Okay. Good. Good. That's like a huge plus yeah. for me. Whenever I see somebody barefoot on stage, I'm just like, okay, no, I can't go there. I don't know what it is. Put some. Put no, some fucking no. Shoes I was on. a well kempt indiv- individual. <laughs> um, yeah. So I. Um, I I kept up with the theater thing. Like I thought, oh, I want to do, I want to be an actress. And then I realized 
that um, I wasn't thrilled with being an actress because they were all that you were limited to acting in the plays that other people picked, and then you know, and then someone else was deciding what roles you could play too. So um, it's so funny. So, it's so funny to hear you yeah. say this. I've heard this. I've heard some iteration of this exact thing uh, so many times on this show where. Uh, yeah. a, a person who all ultimately becomes a writer of books has like uh, multiple interests artistically and winds up gravitating towards books after realizing how much collaboration there is yes. <laughs> in other art forms. And realize- I wish, I wish that I could collaborate well, but I'm also terrible at that. Like I love, I I'm so impressed by people that can work together and like agree that the thing that they're making is, you know, this beautiful hybrid of both of their intentions. But, um, but I have never been able to get past that when I try to make something with someone else. I'm always like, Oh, but you know, that's a great idea, but mine is better. (laughs) It's awful. Well, but it's like, you know, it's very fascinating to me because I think about that. I, I think about that as well. Like uh, something as complicated as getting a major film produced. And then yeah. like, it, it really feels like a miracle that any good film ever gets made when there's that many cooks yeah. in the kitchen. It seems like you would need to compromise so much. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's incredible that it ever works out. Well, but, but then at the same time, like if you think about books, like, yes, you're off and you're working in isolation alone and you have like, you know, a master level of control, meaning like you're, you're ultimately the chief of whatever book you write, you know, your editor, you know, typically doesn't have final cut to use a film term, mm-hmm. but I think right. that, I think that more often than not, uh, if a really good book gets written, multiple people read it. Uh, you have, <clears throat> you have a good editor at a publishing house who's weighing in and offering very insightful advice that, you know, helps the overall thing. And yeah. something that I noticed often, uh, in talking to writers is that, a lot of writers who wind up doing really well and who wind up writing books that resonate with a lot of people, uh, like one commonality, and it's not a hard, fast rule because these things don't tend to exist, but it's just something I notice is often there, is that they're a part of a, of a writing community wherever they are. And they work with people, they workshop their stuff, even after, like long after the MFA is done. Um, they, have good, yeah. they have good friends that they meet with regularly and they share their work with. And that to me feels like a collaborative process, even if like it's not quite the same as like, you know, sitting in a room with people making important creative decisions about the narrative that, you you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, yeah. There's still a collaboration. And I think that there are very few writers who can truly just lock themselves away in a room, show their stuff to nobody and emerge with like a, a, you know, an immaculate piece of fiction. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely agree. So do you have that? I mean, do you have a community that you're a part of in Chicago? Do you have like a group of readers that you deal with? I have a handful. I don't have anyone super consistent. Um, I have like a number of friends that on occasion will say like, read this and tell me what's wrong with it or what's right about it, you know. Um, But it's it's often like I, I move around a lot depending on who I want to read it, you know? Um, and I do, I, I have an agent now, so she's giving me tons of good advice on, um, on a novel that I'm working on. Who's your uh, agent? And she's, um, Claudia Ballard okay. with I, William Morris. Cool. How did you land with her? Um, well, well, uh, a friend of mine has her as her agent. 
Um, so I had met her, but I, I was, I thought for sure that this person, that Claudia wouldn't remember me when I queried her. Um, and she did luckily. And she, it, the timing was really awesome. I sent her an email and said, um, you know, I have this new novel that I'm working on. I have this one novel out and it's had some good luck, but, um, you know, would you be open to reading this new thing? And, it, you know, maybe she was just bullshitting me, but um, but she said that she had just uh, finished reading my first novel and that she had been about to reach out to me. So it was sort of kismet. No or at shit. least it felt that way at the time. Yeah. Meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, and do you find that that's like a big advantage? Like, do you feel like having an agent at one of these big agencies? I'm, I'm assuming she's in New York. Uh like does that yeah. has it added anything tangible or is it still too early to say I think it's still too early to say I mean I but well I I do think it's added something tangible in that like I feel a lot more confident about this thing that I'm working on and she just has such smart things to say about the draft she's seen and um smart suggestions to make that I mean it's helped me as a writer if if even if she's never able to sell the book like she's She's just an amazing person to have on my side. Yeah, agents are often like you know really have really sharp editorial. I mean, they read a lot, you know. Uh, yeah. And they're often that's a very intimate relationship. Oftentimes, like they're all you know, like my agent's uh, my first reader. If I have a piece of fiction, like I send it to her, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, I think I mean this is still pretty new like we haven't even been working together for a year so who's who's to know but I I have a feeling that'll be the case here too just because in such a short time amount of time she's earned my trust. Cool. Well, okay, and so yeah. just to kind of dial back to the biography and like how you actually, you know, got to this point um, you, you, you know, you leave college, you, you leave the guitar behind, or I don't know if you left it behind, but you know, you, you, <laughs> you move back to Chicago and like, are you thinking of yourself at that point as a writer? Uh, well, I went straight from undergrad to an MFA program. Ah, where'd you go? The School of the Art Institute in Chicago. So. Okay. And? Uh, it was awesome. It's a, it's an amazing program. It's super interdisciplinary. So, um, so they don't make you choose between, like, fiction, poetry, nonfiction. They let you do whatever you want. And in addition to that, like, in a given class, if you're, say, like, in a class about uh, Thoreau, it, it's not even just writers because it's an art school. It's, uh, you might have two photographers and a sculptor and, like, a visual communication student in the class. So um, that was especially helpful in workshops because... Uh, you were getting these wild perspectives on the thing that you were making. And they weren't thinking of it as, like, typical, like, plot arc, that kind of stuff. Like, they were thinking about how you were sculpting this piece of work or how you were um, – or they had, like, really visual interpretations or sound or – it was great. Like how to sculpt civil disobedience or something? <laughs> Well, I mean, that, that's a poor example because that's like more of a seminar, but like a, a, it, the workshops is where that became really great. So did I you, mean, people, well, yeah, did, and were people's you, go opinions ahead. within the, sorry, people's opinions within the seminars, of course, were really wonderful too, because they were trying to like place the framework of whatever this literature, like philosophy or something was on their own work. But, um, but yeah, it's the workshops where things sort of like blew open, you know, if someone said the right thing. Yeah, that, that that sounds smart to me. I mean, I think inter interdisciplinary and kind of cross pollination, um, even even among different types of writing. You know, where you're taking classes in fiction or nonfiction or television writing and screenwriting. Like, 
I think they all inform one another. And then to take it a step or two further, like, you know, integrating the visual arts, it can't hurt, you know, to have an education that's broad based like that. And uh, I guess I, I'm the, a natural question to ask is that if you had sculptors in your, you know, uh, Thoreau seminar, like, were you ever sitting in on like sculpting classes or anything like that? Um, I, I mostly stuck with the writing track classes, which is so unfortunate because when I was applying, I was like, oh, I'm going to take a photography class and I'm going to do all this other stuff. But when you get there and you realize like the cost of a class, I, I was like, all right, well, I've got two years and I'm, I'm still going to stay pretty focused on, uh, on writing stuff, or at least that was my, uh, my tactic in the first semester. And then I realized that all of these visual art students were coming to me that, um, that I realized like that was a lot already built in. So, uh, I did, uh, take and then teach a text off the page class. So thinking about like text and other contexts and like in a gallery setting or public art or, uh, different like alternative methods of publication, that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, that was sort of as far as I took that. Okay, and then, uh, so you're young when you finish your MFA, if you went straight out of undergrad to, to grad. Yeah. So, and then yep. where, where was, like, how did the, did the internet play a role? Like, were you getting into internet literature? Were you uh, trying to access community and think about publication that way? Yeah, for sure. Like, when I was finishing up my MFA, I think, is when I started trying to, um, like, publish. And it's, it, um, yeah, so much of it was online then and now, but uh, just trying to figure out where I belonged, you know, so figuring out where the stuff was that I wanted to read. And then, uh, I mean, you know, oftentimes where you, the stuff is that you want to read is where you want to be trying to place your stuff too. So, so where, so where was um, it? Oh, at the time, um, like Pindeldi Boz and, and Word Riot and Thieves Jargon and iShot and like all, all those places that were sort of like the earlier lit mags. Um, I mean, I, I had higher aspirations. Like I loved like Dalkey Archive and um, McSweeney's and, um, and like, you know, h- higher up publications, but, uh, but at the time, like I, I realized that, or I don't know, in my mind, I thought that it was a little more realistic to aim a little lower. So, but that's, you know, there's, there's some humility in that. I think there's a lot of people who they're like 23 and like submitting to the New Yorker slush pile, which, you know, yeah. uh, you got, I mean, on a, on a certain level you admire the boldness, but then, yeah. you know, if you read that stuff 10 years later, it can seem ridiculous. Uh, oh yeah. And I mean, I think I knew even then uh, the New Yorker is maybe someday it might be the right, uh, venue for my work, but my gosh, it, what I make is so far from what they put out. Like the the highest that I was aiming was things that were places like fence or tin house, you know, and even that is such a huge stretch. Like it's, it's hard to get in those places I realize, but, um, but like that was, where I was seeing work that I thought maybe there was like some long string between what they were putting out and what, um, what I was making. So what about rejection? Like how much rejection were you dealing with? A lot, a lot, but I've never really had too much of a problem with rejection, maybe because of what you were talking about earlier, that it's just like, all right, well, I've got to put in the hours and this is just part of it, you know? Um, but and also, I think that rejection was a really great way for me to figure out the community where I did belong. You know, like in the beginning, I was just sort of like pushing my work like to any 
any size magazine that I thought was about the right uh, like size and uh, audience for my pieces, but I, but you can't read everything. So you don't know. So it, it, in some ways it narrowed it down for me. It helped me find uh, the people that I wanted to be talking to and reading. So you never get like, when you get like, cause to go back to the competitive thing, like you get a rejection, would you ever get pissed off? Do you punch the wall or anything like that? <laughs> no, not that much. Um, so I think sometimes, uh, <laughs> uh, the most I'll do is like, tell my boyfriend at the end of the day, like, Oh, you know, I got rejected for this like grant I applied for or something. And then like, he'll put on a record I like to listen to for dinner, you know, <laughs> like I'll play it that way. But mostly it's, I don't know. I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, it feels normal to be rejected. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't phase me that much. But no, and like no depression. Like, do you have depression? Have you ever fought with that as a writer? Or as a person? Um, I think that if, I think that I have so many emotions. Uh, depression is hard for me to like say, you know, oh, it's depression. But like, I'm just very, I, I know that I'm very all over the place. Like one day I can just be like ecstatic and the next day just like really down. But I think most of that kind of stuff doesn't have a ton with, to do with writing. If anything, like it has to do with, just trying to like find the time um, and wishing that I had more time and more focus to put into projects I'm doing so that I could like be moving more quickly on whatever this path is. But, um, but like for the most part, I think it's just like, I just, uh, I have a really hard time not taking uh, like life personally. Like if something bad happens to someone else, like I feel that so deeply that um that it can just really ruin my day you know like if someone is is feeling sick and it's someone i care about like i just like i can make myself sick with worry yeah it's like yeah <laughs> i feel like my wife is like that like if i'm sick like she almost always gets sick not that i mean i guess we're sleeping together so she would maybe be, just be getting it but it's almost like yeah. a, it's like a guarantee it's it's like you, you know yeah or yeah, or if someone's just, like, really having a rough time, like, with, like, you know, they're upset about something, like, I just, like, I want so badly to try and make that better for that person that, like, I can, like, put myself into, like, some level of sadness, and then I'm no use to that other person. Like, right. in some ways, it's very, I, I think it's really self-centered and counterproductive. Like, I wish it was something I could change about myself to, like, not, like, be able to empathize like in that same in that at that heightened level or something because it's like it's you know it's it's selfish it, well, I think maybe it it's is, maybe but... it's like another maybe it's an extension of the competitive thing you're like oh yeah you're, yeah. you're sad well watch this <laughs> you know like I'm gonna, yeah. be, I'm gonna be even sadder <laughs> gosh I hope not and that's certainly not what's going through my mind but like you know I can look at a situation after it's over and just be like oh I just I wish that I could have just stayed removed from that and you know I don't know so what do you think you're really good at as a writer? Like, why do you, I mean, you, you mean everyone who goes into this has, people have told them that they can write. They, they have some sense that this is what they should do. They feel good about what they're putting down on paper. But like when you try to evaluate your own work at this stage of the game, like what is, what are your strengths? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I'm okay at coming up with like, with original imagery and, um, 
and playing with language, but I know that sometimes it's to the detriment of the narrative in my work. Uh, so, you know, that's a positive countered by a negative. Um, but if, if you're a reader that uh, enjoys just going like line by line and finding those little like surprises in, in a sentence or a phrase, uh, hopefully my work is, is fun for you. And did you have people yeah. in your life who were really encouraging, like like who really stood out for their encouragement? It's like, and and when you look back on your life, you think to yourself, these are the people who probably helped me make my decision to pursue this. Um. Yeah. I mean, I de- definitely like in college, I had amazing professors that were just um, really open to doing independent studies and and helping me uh, make school into what I wanted it to be. You know, helping me like pursue the goals that uh, that maybe weren't built into the curriculum or something. Um, but so, yeah, like I definitely had professors that were amazing and I like owe everything to. Um, and then in grad school, too, I mean, people are so – teachers are just so incredibly generous. It blows my mind. Um, sometimes I wonder if I would be happier teaching, but I just like – I don't think I have enough – in me to, to teach and write. Like, I think it requires a similar amount of, uh, time and energy and like creative, uh, wherewithal that I I don't, I don't know that I have enough to do both. Yeah. I found, I mean, I did it for five years and I found, I found it like really enriching in a lot of ways, but really draining, like really draining. Yeah. And, and to to be like really blunt about it, like they just, it doesn't pay. You're doing, you're, I mean, if you're adjuncting, it's just like horrible pay for a ton of work. And I know that is my fear. That yeah. gets depressing. It's like, oh my god, you know. And I just don't have the, you know, for doing it, uh, doing it for a long time seems uh, crazy to me. But there are people who I think, you know, once you get into the tenure track jobs and you get into the bigger universities or whatever, you can make a decent living at it and hopefully have like sabbatical semesters where you can recharge your batteries. But it's a lot, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So when do you finally break through? Or when do you feel like you uh, finally break through and, and get yourself in print and start to feel like you're getting some momentum? I mean, I uh, I don't know that it ever felt that way when I was just doing, um, like, publishing stories and poems and things. But, um, but, I mean, I guess there, like, I felt like a certain amount of legitimacy when I could say, I have a book coming out. So, like, so I guess when my novel was accepted. But that's, I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm constantly in danger of uh, losing my writer status if I don't keep doing it, you know? Right. So um, so even if, like, I have something on the books, if I'm not working towards whatever the next thing is, you know, um, then I can't rightfully say that, you know? Well, you're like, yeah, that's the type A in you. So, like, uh, like uh, work, work habit-wise, particularly in the context of having a day job, like, are you up at dawn? Like, when do you do the work? <clears throat> No, not dawn, but I do, yeah, I get up before work, uh, ideally at like six and then I would write from like six to eight, but oftentimes like more like six thirty or seven and, and then write for an hour or so. But you can see, this is the thing though, is that like, I think writers can trick themselves into thinking they need these longer blocks, but if, yeah. you, if you just up and you sit down for an hour and you actually focus and try to do the work, like the, those pages <laughs> add up eventually. 
Yeah, I think so. The thing that I find myself butting up against is that, like, I'll I'll putz around for, like, 20 minutes once I sit down and, like, just sort of not really do anything. And then I'll get going on something, and then I have to get ready for work, you know? So, um, so yeah, if I could just get out of my own way and actually do what I intend, that would be great. Well, you and everyone else. I mean, putzing around, yeah. for, putzing around <laughs> for 20 minutes seems efficient to me. Like, wow, you're really... <laughs> You're really you're really locked in. It's like laser focus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. So, and you know, the, like it brings up another interesting question because I think all of us, you know, like like to say that we wish we had more time to just like you know do our writing work unimpeded and not have to worry about these other things and make money and all this, you know, all the yeah. usual, all the usual life stuff. But um, you ever think to yourself like maybe the tension that that brings is actually yes. helpful? Like if you just had all day, Absolutely. if you just had all day to write fiction, that's kind of a nightmare, isn't it? I probably end up writing the exact same amount that I do now. Yeah, it's like, and plus, like, like maybe a little bit more, but I think that yeah, I, I'd end up just like. I'd end up watching more reality TV and vacuuming my house or something. And yeah, absolutely. I think that I have a pretty finite amount of work that I can actually get done in a day. And maybe that's just something that I tell myself to make myself feel better about having a day job, you know, like, and, and only limiting my, the amount of time that I can spend on writing to a couple of hours a day at most. But, um, but yeah, I think that's totally true because even on times when I've gone on like a month long residency or something, um, I, I need to have multiple projects going or I need to have multiple levels of projects going because I can't just sit down and just like crank out 30 pages in one go of like the novel I'm working on. Like I need to, you know, like I'm going to, put down a thousand words of this and then I'm going to edit this down and then I'm going to try and rearrange this to figure out how it should be, uh, like paced, you know, that kind of stuff. Like I, I can't just do one thing in like for a marathon, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's kind of, I mean, I, I guess it's different strokes for different folks, but it seems like a, a healthy way, like to have a couple of, you know, two or three different things that you can jump from and in case you get bogged down in one, because it, it's just like, yeah. like Otherwise, you just like if, if if like all your eggs are in one basket and things start to go south or you have a slow day, then you're just like sitting there in this like horrible state of inertia. <laughs> um, yeah, that's yeah. no fun. So, um, okay, so the the residency that you just spoke about, uh, the month long residencies, that's not in the context of your current job, are you? you they don't let you go take a month long residency. I haven't at this job, but I ha I worked at a different software company before this, and they did let me take a month and go and go to Vermont for a month. Yep. Okay. And how much work did you get done there? Um, a fair amount. Like I think I added something like, uh, like maybe I I mean I think I finished a draft. Like I had half a draft of a novel, and I finished the draft while I was there. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I, my book, what I can write is short though, you know, so that's probably something that a normal person could have achieved in, you know, just writing for an hour every morning for like a couple months or something. But, um, but yeah, and then I was working on other stuff. Like I was formatting a story collection and working on like an essay and yeah, so it's hard to quantify, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I liked it. I like it for the same reason that I liked my MFA though, I think is that like talking to people and not necessarily workshopping stuff, but just like the community and being around artists who are really 
giving it their all with their art is is very um rejuvenating <laughs> yeah no it is i mean because it can be lonely it can feel like what the what the fuck am i doing <laughs> you yeah. know and it's nice to be around other people who are crazy enough to try you know and yeah and and take it seriously because i think it can get hard to it's easier to take it seriously when you're around other people it's like that social confirmation theory thing you, you know like mm-hmm. whereas if, yeah. you, if you're just on your own you're like i'm up at six like chugging caffeine <laughs> making up stories, you know, like a, a you know, yeah. however many people are going to read, like it can seem absurd sometimes. Yeah. Um, so what's, what kind of career do you want? Like, do you have like a vision? Have you, are you a goal oriented person? Do you make lists of like things you want to achieve? Um, so like, uh, writing career wise, I, I mean, I would like to give it a go with a bigger press just to see what it's like. Like, I don't know that it's the answer, especially with the way that publishing is changing. And, um, like, I don't know that it's necessarily, uh, you know, that that much better to be with a bigger publisher. But um, but I'd like to try it, you know. Like, it's that part of me that it still wants to just give it a shot at being like the best. And in my mind, that's like the, you know, the really standard way of saying like you did it, you know, but I mean, but I don't know that once I experienced that, that I would want to stay there. I don't know. You know, I, I haven't been through it. What so about, what that's about, a goal. what about like, uh, do you ever think about the, the writing that you do and, and, and the market, the marketplace and think like, how can I write something with mass appeal? Do you ever approach it from that angle? I don't think so. It would be really great if someone read my stuff and and it did end up having that um that wider audience, but I I'm so blind to plot and narrative in a lot of ways that I mean, I I think that I might not stand a chance. The best I the best I might achieve is like some sort of cult classic. That's good though. Everyone, I mean, yeah. I'd love to write a cult classic. Right. I mean, I think I might rather write that than like a bestseller. Like I need to, I need, I wish there was some easy, I know that they say book scan. You can, I mean, I think book scan offers this information, doesn't it? Like I want to find out like how many copies of like the naked lunch or of naked lunch have sold. Like, cause it's a cult classic, but like how many copies? Oh have sold? yeah. Something is something yeah, but that, that's like in the canon now, you know, I like it started out, it started out as a cult classic, but I want to know like, how big of an appetite is there for stuff that's that far out in the world? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Uh, or maybe when something's enough of a cult classic, it becomes like a book people think they should have, and then it just becomes like a coaster, you know, in their house or something. Like, yeah, yeah. But which is fine. Yeah, but in that in that way, sometimes I wonder, like, how much is it actually selling in new bookstores, and just what is the turnover at used bookstores? You know, like, is it that thing that you pick up at, like, the library book sale because it's only 50 cents, or is it, like, you're actually going to your bookstore and paying $15 for it, you know? Well, you need, like, you need, like, like, for cult classics, it feels like something that's skewed towards youth. I mean, I think cult classics and literature, like, I think about my college years, especially when art is such, like, social currency. So it's like what you're, yeah. what you're listening to is so emblematic of who you are and it's like how you communicate who you are and what you're reading and all that kind of stuff. And I think to a degree that's still, that's still the case. But as you get older, I mean, I, I can't speak for you, but I care a, a heck of a lot less than I used to about that stuff. Um, yeah, no, for sure. So literature maybe feels a little different to me. Like I know that there are like the trendy things for, you know, people in their like 
early 20s to read or whatever. Like when I was in my early 20s, everybody was reading Chuck Palahniuk, right? You know, and like, and he's really good at what he does, you know, but, um, but after a while you realize, oh, it's really very similar from book to book. Like it's, it's a formula, you know? Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in like figuring out what is being written now, like what will end up being the cult classic? Because, I, I don't know. It's it. There, there's such a high turnover there's for so, there's so whatever's many books. trendy. And you so, know. Yeah, and the internet and is so fast. And that's really different than what a cult classic is. Okay. You know. Well, okay. Let's. This is this is interesting, and this brings up a good question. Yeah. Let's try to game this. Like, if you had to guess. All right. Uh, what What do you think? Like books that have been written in the last five years or so, five ten years. Like, what can you name any books that you think will have a long life? You know, in that way. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm thinking like, and so, and so then the other tricky thing is like, you know, is it going to be an indie press book or is it going to be something that had like a bigger release? But, you know, you, you would think it's going to be, if it's going to end up being a cult classic, did it sell really well when it first came out and then sort of died away, but has this quiet, uh, you know, uh, continued audience. Or is it something that just like very quietly showed up and then, uh, and then you know is sort of picking up speed as the years go by? Yeah, that's I'm, looking, um, I'm like I'm turning around, so my I don't know my levels drop. Yeah. I'm looking I'm looking I at my bookshelf. My bookshelf in front of me. Right, I'm trying to think. It's it's really hard. It's really hard to predict, you know. And and uh, yeah, I, it comes, yeah, it comes down to I guess it comes down to like word of mouth, people passing a book. Like when I think of a cult classic, I I, I don't think of something that makes a lot of noise right out of the gates you know maybe it right. makes, maybe it makes some like significant critical noise in certain quarters but that doesn't mean much i mean I there, there, there are only a few people paying attention um you know to there there aren't a huge amount of people in the uh in the wider culture who are like paying attention to the literary criticism but then it becomes a book that like has modest sales but then picks up steam over time and then you know i hate to say it but like you brought up chuck Palahniuk and um, nothing at all against him, but you know a lot of his um, success at finding a big readership has to be rooted in the movie Fight Club. Um, oh, absolutely, I and mean, I think that's probably what brought me to it originally too. Yeah, that was like Brad Pitt at his like apex of like cool, and so that's huge and totally not cult in any way. <laughs> but yeah. like that movie has that feeling to it, so it fools people into thinking like they have the inside scoop. Yeah, it makes like, but and the movie also seems like, with the benefit of hindsight, really predictive, and it's got that like, you know, I don't know, it was just, it was so cool. It's just so cool. That's the thing about it. And then that sheen sort of carries over, and the rest is history. Um, yeah. Okay, so here's a book. I mean, I'll just, I'm just going to go out on a limb. A book that was published, right. a book that was published this year that has gotten a great critical reception that I think will have a long life is uh, Jenny Offal's Department of Speculation. Oh, I just read that. I thought that was so good and like so clever and like really like artfully done. I don't know. I loved it. I like that a lot. Have you read um, Mary Robeson's Why Did I Ever? No. Should I? It's amazing. Yes, absolutely. It's very, um, the format is very similar to Jenny Offal's book um, in that it's like little chunks separated by white space. I think in Why Did I Ever, they're numbered, but, um, but the, like she has, a, like a really sharp wit to her that just floors me. Um, it's one of my favorite books. Okay. It's really great. I'll check it out. I mean, if it's anything like that, I, I really thought, I thought Department of Speculation right now is my, I mean, 
not that I've read like hundreds of books, but I've, it's the best book I've read all year. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess we've covered it all. Is there anything that we left out? Do you feel like we, there's something you need to say to the public that we haven't <laughs> talked about? I don't think so. No. Well, it's, it's been a great pleasure. Uh, and congratulations on uh, all your success. I'll be interested to see what happens with, uh, you know, the next novel that you're in process on. And, uh, thank you. I, I wish you well, uh, with the release of the new one. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Okay, guys, there you go. That's Jack Gems. Her new story collection due out this fall is called A Different Bed Every Time. Uh, it's available from Dezank Books. Go pre-order it. Go track it down. You can find Jack online at jackgems.com. She's on Twitter at Jack Gems. She's on Facebook. I believe she's also on Instagram if you would like to peruse her personal photo collection. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get that app, the free official Other People app. Have you done that yet? Go do that. It's free. You get the app, you download it to your device, and then you can sign up for premium right there within the app and stream every single episode, all uh, 300, nearly 300, including conversations with uh, you know authors like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Tao Lin, uh, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem, Edwidge Dantica, you name it. Scores of writers, all there at your fingertips. So... Uh, yeah, you know, on the, this rant, like, I just kind of, like, uh, freelanced on the front end. You always wind up sounding like a jackass when you do that, and you're talking about things like world peace, <laughs> humanity, you know? Unless you have, like, a really prepared statement, or you write a book or an essay, and it's edited and carefully considered. Uh, I'm just reacting to what's been going on in the world this week. And I want to add a couple of thoughts, because, you know, what I really mean uh, is that war, or whatever it is, Armed, you know, armed uh, intervention, drones, whatever it is, whatever manifestation it takes on, uh, unsustainable in the age of drones, in the age of bioweapons, in the age of suitcase nukes. It's an unsustainable way to resolve conflict. And yes, I understand. Like, you could convince me that there are certain instances where force is the only option. I'm not a complete... You know, dogmatic pacifist. I want to be, but like, I, you know, it's a tough world. Sometimes you need cops to go in, you know. Sometimes somebody's, you know, if, if you're on a boat <laughs> and the captain of the ship is a crazy person who's going to kill everybody and sink the ship, uh, you know, if you shoot the captain, you save everybody. I'm down with that, I think. So it's that, and then, you know, the whole thing about we need leaders that have more courage or whatever. Uh, true, we do, but we kind of get the leaders that we deserve, too, at least in uh, quasi-democracies, you know, where we're electing our representatives. We get the leaders we deserve. So we need, you know, we need uh, wiser leaders. We also need wiser citizens. Include, you know, I speak uh, of myself. I include myself. I need to be wiser. What the fuck am I doing? You know? I just, I have, I really want someone to save us. I want there to be just a great leader, like a cartoon leader, you know, like super Gandhi. I want super Gandhi to save America and the world. I want like a, a Jesus guy, you know, Jesus plus Buddha equals president of the United States. That's what I want. Some guy who just, just speaks the truth or some woman, I should say, you know, I want a transgender super Gandhi president. That's what I want. I think I've landed on it. I want 
Somebody who encompasses the male and the female, who subverts the dominant paradigm, who acts like Jesus plus Buddha, and who fixes this fucking world. Is that too much to ask? I hope it's not too much to ask. Uh, what do I got to do? Oh, I got to do that thing where I, uh, <clears throat> I ask you to remember stuff. Hang on, let me find some stuff. Please remember that Longfellow died of peria, or no, peritonitis, and that Frank Norris also died of peritonitis. That's all for now. That's the end of the show. I appreciate uh, you guys listening. Thanks to Jack Gems. Go get her book. Thanks to Dezank Books. Uh, it's fun to say that. It's fun to say Dezank. I'll be back in a few days with another episode with another author or a writerly type person. Uh, I hope you will be here to listen. Okay, bye for now. Bye for now.